What do you make of um, Ted Cruz? Oh, you know, that was, I mean, what do they call it, optics? That was absurd. I mean, he wasn't thinking, obviously. He said, you know, he was trying to be a dad. I, I understand that. Um, it's not like he's gonna. He's just it's not like he's gonna do anything to you know help anybody. But it's not. It doesn't look good, and that's sad. He shouldn't have done it. I agree. Why wouldn't he do anything to help anybody? He's the senator that represents the state. And, of Texas. and what is he gonna do? He's you know what's he supposed to do? He can call up Joe Biden. He can get on the phone and try to troubleshoot. I think problems that's all been done. Can... I think that's all been done. I think. They've declared it an emerge, uh, you know, disaster zone or whatever they call it, and they're getting federal aid. It's all, it's all in the works. It's all happening. But he, he's not on the ground doing stuff. You know, he's not. He's the senator. He's not the governor. He's not. He's not involved in the day-to-day stuff there. But I understand it didn't look great. It's stupid. I mean, first of all, it didn't look good, and for someone who is a, a very cognizant of political theater. It was sort of surprising to me that he could have done something so like tone deaf because he really does like I think have a have a, a brain that's designed to jump on things in a theatrical way, you know? So seems like I, I think it. he's a very brilliant guy. I think he's very very bright. Um it's interesting though, news coverage. I mean, is your is uh, CNN been covering it? I know they've been covering. Yeah, yeah. No, I know they've been covering that, but have they been covering Cuomo's all these investigations that are happening? Yeah. To the same degree. Yeah, I mean, I think so. You know, it's it's definitely. I mean, I don't think you so. Know. I don't think I don't think the coverage uh, has been the same. I think you know, um, this is a guy the press hates, so they're going after him. Uh, Cuomo's a guy the, pre- the press loves, so. They're not giving it the same coverage. And Kumo is a situation where people died. And and he he's personally responsible for a lot of it. And it's a- I mean, they had an interview with um, uh, the, the state legislator who said that Cuomo called to threaten him. Then, then Bill de Blasio was on TV saying, like, yeah, unfortunately, this is just actually not very surprising because I've gotten phone calls like this from Cuomo in the past. I mean, I think it is getting like uh, it's getting airtime. It's getting coverage. But um, uh, and it's just like also so like you've 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 said before on the on the show, like, you know, your buddy Cuomo. What's going on over there? Uh, no. It's like loud, I'm hearing like loud noises. Bobby's cleaning up a little. Bobby making okay. too much noise. You're making too much noise. Oh, sorry. You're being picked up on the microphones. All right. She's going to go in the other room. I think it is getting... Yeah, we're, we're taping this right now. Are we all clear over there? Uh, it's almost a little clear. I'm talking to Russ. It's almost, she got a Lazy Susan. It's very nice. It's a lazy Susan. Our audience will be very impressed. They can't see it, but it's it's nice. It's walnut colored, matches the table, and it's a lazy Susan, that wooden one. Okay. What I was saying is, I have a lot of things to criticize Andrew Cuomo for, and I also thought it was incredibly ill-fated that he wrote that book about leadership and overcoming <laughs> COVID. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That came out, came out in October. Yeah. You yeah. know. And he got an Perhaps the most telling thing of all. 
is that there was apparently nobody there to tell him like, hey, this is probably not like a good idea, you know, like, why don't you go ahead and wait until this is over? Maybe give it another year or my, two. My sense about vaccinated. the man is he doesn't take lightly to criticism. Um, I listened to that interview or to another interview of that guy who's on the, uh, um, I think the elderly uh, committee chairman on in the assembly, state assembly in New York. Um, maybe it's a state senate, I don't know, but Kim, I think his name was. Um, and he he was berated for like a half hour by Como. So I don't think the governor takes kindly to criticism, and I think he can be no, he could be very he, he could be very nasty and arrogant. You know, people dotted over his press conferences, but if you actually go back and watch them, uh, he's also very like nasty and and snaps at reporters and mm-hmm. is sort of like a bully and and sort of operates like in that old school New York sort of mafioso way of like right. bullying people and threatening people. And in fact, you know, people make the comparison that uh, Bernie Sanders is like the, the mirror image of Donald Trump. I actually think it's probably more someone like Andrew Cuomo. You may be as, right. As the mirror you image may be right um, in a lot of ways. I mean, I mean, he certainly had a lot of public persona out there with that doing those daily shows and um, it got him you know nationwide publicity which was uh, f- from a political standpoint very very good but yeah I think his his career is finished I mean I'm sure he had eye on the White House at some point in the future and so that's over yeah it'll be interesting to see how it plays out because he I mean it, it's not just by happenstance that he has been reelected so many times it's like he he runs a very powerful political machine mm-hmm. and that's it's it's why he's able to bully the gov the, the mayor of new york city mm-hmm. it's why he's able to squash primary opponents you know yeah um yeah so you know he's 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 really entrenched as a um a, a power broker and well it's a political in, powerhouse that politics. family i mean his father was governor and also was thinking about um, throwing his hat in the ring for the White House, and um, somehow that all just went away one day, and nothing came out. Well, he was smeared. He was yeah. smeared by the Clintons. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the Clintons accused him of being mobbed up. I know, and that, and then then he sort of went away. So I don't know if there was any truth to that or not. Well, then he. Well, what? No, what happened was I think behind the scenes, uh, it was pretty clear that it was going to be Bill. And then right. as a uh, concession, supposedly, they offered Andy the, um, uh, I think he was the Secretary of Labor or HUD or something mm-hmm. under Clinton. And that was sort of the olive branch between Clinton and Cuomo. Hmm. Okay. Let me just Google that so I know I got it right. Yeah, Cuomo served as the Assistant Secretary of Housing and Urban Development. He led the Department of Housing and Urban Development from ni- oh because he got promoted in '97 mm. to HUD secretary. Anyway, okay. um, do you think that the Texas debacle is a clear indication that green energy is is the culprit, and we should all be weary of? converting to green energy because I don't have uh, enough facts to make a determination. I mean, I've seen, <laughs> what are you laughing about? 
because it's total it's the total bullshit narrative. No, no, you know, no. What does she say? Ten percent. What does she say? I'll, I'll get back to you. I'll get back to you. Uh, Who said that? The, the gal who's the Biden's uh, press secretary. Zaki. Yeah. Jen Saki. Jen Saki. Yeah. Uh, she says that every ten, day. I'll get back to you on that. I'll, I'll come around back around on that. Um, no, I, the reason I don't is, I mean, I've seen pictures of frozen uh, windmills and. Okay, so there's a few frozen windmills, and maybe they're all frozen, but I I don't know what percentage of the power. It's ten percent of the state. So I don't know that that really is a, a, you know, the the cause. I I don't know. I don't have enough information. Um, I haven't researched into how much of their power comes from wind versus. Well, it, it's interesting because Texas it's is about the oil 10%. capital of America, you know. I mean, <laughs> right, but what they did was they, you know, Texas famously has one of the only sort of free market unregulated uh, energy industries and they've decided to not be a part of the rest of the national grid, you know. Ah. And part part of that deregulation means and if you ask the guy who's the CEO of their their energy uh company or, or um, utility, uh, ERCOT it's called, he basically said that they weren't forced, they, they weren't legally required to winterize their operations or to compile like uh, reserves of, of natural gas, you know? And so because they weren't legally in, uh, forced to do so, there was no financial incentive for them to do so either. And so they didn't, you know. Yeah, well, it's it's too it's too bad. I mean, a lot of people have died, and um, people. Are, I mean, people are suffering. You know, when it's that cold and you don't have heat, I mean, that's pretty brutal. Um, you know, people, families, and what have you. It's sad. It's just sad. It shouldn't be. It shouldn't be. And yeah, I don't know why sad. they're not um, regulated. I don't know why they're not obligated uh, by the state to um, put aside, you know, uh, stockpile some natural gas or, or, you know, have winterized just just in case. Because they're making money. It's because they're making no, money. No, I, I, I know why they didn't do it. What I'm saying is they should be regulated. I don't know why they're not yeah, regulated. They, because the politicians are not incentivized to do anything that would incur them expenses because the politicians are also funded by... The energy yeah, industry. Yeah, but the politicians are responsible yeah. to the people, and the people are probably going to make the politicians pay through the nose for this. There will be in there theory, will be elections. you're right. You know what? In theory, in theory, you're right, and this is part of what we're going to get to. Uh, we're going to talk about the new Adam Curtis movie, "Can't Get You Out of My Head," and this is one of the one of the things that I think that that documentary and Adam Curtis and his career have sort of set out to show, right, is like the, the forces that actually determine the world we live in and the circumstances of our lives beyond what's on the surface or what we're told to, to believe are the actual levers of power that we have some say in and some control over. I don't, um, I don't particularly but, take to uh, his, his theorems and I just don't, uh, ex- I don't accept, we'll get to that. I don't accept what his his basis for all of his thoughts are but okay we'll get to it we that's some that's a little teaser everyone stay tuned it's gonna get real fun and weird when we get to the adam curtis chapter of this episode uh, adam curtis uh, is weird. 
But before we do that, I wanted to also allow you to uh, eulogize one of your favorite political commentators, Rush Limbaugh. Uh, Yes, I think it's sad um, when a strong conservative political force uh, dies. And uh, he died at a young age, at 70. That's kind of young. Seeing as how I'm 78, I consider that young. uh, I, he he definitely created um, an incredible following on talk radio. Um, I think he revolutionized radio uh, to a large degree. Whereas uh, it, before Rush, it was all about music and um, news. He he brought about talk radio, which is pretty widespread today. Um, and politically, he was, I mean, he was, as far as I'm concerned, a very strong conservative. Now, did I agree with everything Rush said? No. Do I think Rush Limbaugh was, you know, to be idolized? No. But I think he deserves a lot of credit for what he, is, what he accomplished in his life. Um, so there. That's my eulogy to Rush Limbaugh. He really pioneered, like, the dramatic pause, you know? Like, I feel like um, growing up, driving around in your car, we would Rush Limbaugh would be on a lot of the time. And I remember, like, <clears throat> you would say something and be like, a come to the end of a sentence. And there'd be a pause, like, about that long yeah. afterwards. <laughs> it helped him make his point. So, like, rhetorically, I think he was gifted in that way. He was gifted, but, in, he was gifted in a lot of ways. I mean, he used a lot of sarcasm. He used a lot of comedy. Um, he had a lot of funny, um, you know, outtakes or uh, recordings that he made of politicians that, that weren't real, you know. Um, and yeah, he he famously uh, in the '80s he had a segment where he would uh, celebrate people who had died of AIDS. Yeah, uh, and gay people who died of AIDS, he he sort of would laugh at them and, and celebrate their deaths, you know. <clears throat> and uh, up until his dying days, he supported the the lie that uh, the election was stolen from Donald Trump. You know. Yeah, I disagreed with him about that, um, but and he and he also was one of the um, godfathers of the birtherism that Barack Obama wasn't born in the United States. He was also one of the first people to take up that idea. Mm, I don't know. I, I you know I didn't listen to him religiously. I um, I hadn't listened to him in several years um, before he died, so I don't know. But um, but I think to your point, it suffice to say. Uh, he really pioneered a sort of ethos and helped to galvanize uh, a reactionary right-wing movement, like a popular movement that resonated with millions and millions I, of people. I, I, and I disagree with your cate- categorizing it as reactionary. I mean, uh, I am a Reagan Republican. Reagan was the last, uh-huh. the last one uh, who was actually very vocal about conservatism. Um, and he was, you know, known as the great communicator. Rush sort of carried that ball forward. Um, like I say, but he was not. He didn't carry that ball forward, Dad. He Rush Limbaugh got in the gutter. Uh, he he slandered. He he called a a college student 
who had testified to say that she wanted to have make sure insurance companies would pay for birth control pills and he called he basically called her a prostitute and a slut you know this wasn't reagan reagan wouldn't have said that you know reagan was uh the guy who who pointed to the city city on a shining hill and right. how great right. america was right. and all this he, he wasn't known for getting in the mud and just slinging nasty vile garbage you know rush limbaugh did that stuff that's why he was so popular is because it was fresh and new and exciting because that cause, and that's why it cut through i think you know well maybe you're right Maybe you're right. I think it's impossible to separate where the Republican Party is now. Like, in terms of, I mean, if you want to categorize the Republican Party by Donald Trump and the whole host of people that are clearly beholden to his power, Rush Limbaugh is one of the godfathers of that movement. Whatever whatever you want to call that movement. A reactionary movement, a right-wing movement, a right-wing populist movement. The, the logical conclusion of the conservative movement. Yeah, I, and I, I 100% agree with you. Right now, the Republican Party is totally in limbo. Nobody knows what's going to happen. Um, there's a divide. Um, you know, people have been talking about starting a third party or a conservative party, and who knows what's going to become of the Republican Party um, after Trump, post-Trump. But it's going to be interesting to watch. I thought maybe we could talk for a second about um, the Joe Biden bill that's going to be probably passed through the House this week. Um, it's interesting. I think we've we've sort of touched on this a little bit, but they, you know, they put into the bill the the, the first draft of the bill a lot of promises that they had made uh, during the campaign and things that they, I think they thought would assuage the concerns of progressives and the left-wing members of the Democratic Party. So they have, for example, the $15 an hour minimum wage, um, which is still in the draft of the bill. It's not going to get passed Although there's in it. <laughs> right. This is, this is the thing. There's like this lingering conversation about, I mean, the grounds on which some of these centrist Democrats are opposing it is that um, it's not legal to pass it through reconciliation. Correct. You know. Correct. But ultimately, like they're the ones that are gonna. The Democrats are the ones that get to make that determination. You know, um, the the Republicans passed the tax bill on reconciliation, so it's hard for me to reckon with the tax bill being legal under reconciliation, fifteen dollar an hour minimum wage not being, and that this is now in the hands of the Democrats. But I think it goes back to the point I was making on the last episode, which is you got to actually ask yourself if the Democratic leadership believes in the things it says it does and wants to do the things that it says it does. It's pretty clear to me that there's a lot of people in positions of power in the Democratic Party who do not want to do the things that they say they want to do, like implement a $15 an hour minimum wage. The other part of the bill um, that's also sort of being... uh, now rejiggered that we've already discussed is these uh, two thousand quote unquote two thousand dollar direct payments that have now been sort of whittled down to fourteen hundred dollars, mm-hmm. which is laughable when you consider now how long it's going to end up being between the first six hundred and the follow up fourteen hundred. Um, so we'll see, I guess, what 
what happens, but I think it's pretty clear that Joe Biden, you know, Joe Biden has sort of said privately to people that he doesn't think the $15 an hour minimum wage is going to be in the final draft of the bill. And I'm assuming that's sort of his way to just say to them, like, hey, listen, this is, you know, this is part of a sales pitch, but we're not actually going to do this. So don't worry too much about it. (laughs) I don't know what his motivation is, but yeah, I think he's he's somewhat of a pragmatist. He knows it's not going to pass, so it's going to come out. I think he doesn't want it to pass, and he and he doesn't want it to pass because he's beholden to, you know, people that backed his campaign and people that have always backed his campaigns over the last 50 years, and those are, like, big financial services institutions and corporations that employ millions and millions of people that would be, that would well, be harmed. Well, we've had, yeah, we've, pro- had, we've had the discussion about whether the 15... 15- uh, dollar an hour wage minimum wage is is uh, a good thing or a bad thing for the country um, you know I mean there's talk about them staggering it in you know making it maybe because right now it's seven and a half right and so instead of doubling yeah. it making it 10 and then 12 and then 14 and and working that's, up that's to the it proposal after yeah. some some years down the road um, by and, 2025 right and there's also some thought that maybe it shouldn't be generic uh nationwide maybe it should be so much for depending on the um cost of living in a in a given area because yeah but what i'm saying is there's a disparity between the pitch and the promise and what they actually want to do that's that's what i'm saying yeah i understand that and that's always the case you got these are politicians these are not these are politicians these are not honest people who are doing they're doing what they have to do to get elected Right. So the last thing I want to touch on before we get to the Adam Curtis documentary, it was also a big um, part of uh, the Biden campaign. And and you've seen it pushed by people as far to the left as Chuck Schumer, who, in my opinion, is sort of a conservative Democrat. But he's been talking about student loan forgiveness. Uh, And Biden said it's not going to happen. It's very near and dear to my heart. Well, what, what Biden said, Biden was asked about it at a town hall. Uh, by because Ch- Chuck Schumer s- has said that he thinks that they should forgive up to fifty thousand dollars of student loan debt. Biden was asked about it at the town hall and said he wouldn't do more than ten thousand. And now Larry Summers, who was a part of the uh, the Obama administration as an economic advisor, he's a, he's an economist. He was actually floated to be a part of the Biden administration and sort of resoundly poo pooed, um, which I found to be heartening. But Listen, he, he was asked about this, uh, and this is what he had to say. You know, I find it ironic and pathetic that the progressive wing of the Democratic Party, people like Senator Warren and Senator Sanders, are all excited to give $50,000 or more of debt relief to young people who are working at Wall Street investment banks making six-digit sums of money, rather than focusing on the needs of the high school dropouts, the needs of those who are graduating from high school but not going on to college and need a specific training. And so I hope that progressives will disconnect from the elite concerns of Ivy League college graduates 
of those with graduate degrees and focus on the people they should be representing, uh, the people who have been left behind. So Larry Summers also uh, has been advocating against the direct payments. So he's he's sort of um, giving voice to uh, the the liberal the, the liberal in the classical sense, free market capitalistic part of the Democratic Party that is against uh, the direct payments, against student loan forgiveness, and uh, of course he's speaking about something very near and dear to my heart. I have at what at what what it was at one point a six figure uh, student loan debt from Ivy League graduate school. Um, so he's talking directly to people like me, I guess. What do you think of what, what he says there? I, I agree with him um, to some degree. I mean, I agree with him to the first portion of what he's saying. Um, yes, you're stuck with this massive uh, student debt, and that's unfortunate that the Ivy League school you chose to go to, well, nobody forced you, um, charges that kind of money. It's outrageous, I think. Um, and I think the schools should be the ones dealing with the outstanding debt. I think the uh, education, the universities should be dealing with that and, and reducing that somehow. I don't think the federal government should. I don't think you should be asking. Well, let, let me, wait, wait, let, let me, me finish my point. I don't think you should be asking people um, all across this country who mm -hmm. either didn't have the ability to go to college or went to college at, at a you know a, a community college and then got into a state school and didn't pay exorbitant rates and, uh, to pay your debt you know I mean I under I, that that's how I feel I I feel bad for you I wish you didn't have this terrible debt but um, in general that that's my thought yeah well going back to the point I was going to interrupt you to make, I took out, I think, $70,000 uh, to go to Columbia Journalism School. It was a year-long program. The tuition was, I think the tuition was supposed to be like 50000 but I got a partial scholarship, so I only had to pay like a fraction of that. But I did borrow money for living expenses. And, you know, the first couple years out of school, I was paying, I was on a repayment plan that was proportional to my income. Um, the interest rate that I was being charged by a Department of Education-backed loan was around seven and three quarters percent. Yeah, it's outrageous. So, outrageous. So, so it got to 116. I think at the height of my loan, it went from like 75,000 to like 115,000, uh, 116,000, something like that. And since then, I've worked it back down to like 82, 83. Thanks to help from you and my mom, uh, and being gainfully employed and making those payments, but if you forgave fifty thousand dollars of my like I've paid fifty or sixty thousand dollars of the loan, and I still owe more than I borrowed. So the Department of Ed actually has capitalized on me paying back my loan to the tune of more money than $50,000, which I would be forgiven. Now, I understand that that's like my case and it's particular and specific to me, but I think that this issue gets sort of mischaracterized. People don't realize that we're paying people, the Department of Education, which is a part of the federal government, is charging people exorbitant interest rates on these student loans. And the majority of the 
burden that people have, that this sort of looming debt that can that you cannot bankrupt out of that follows you to your grave if you don't pay it uh, is structured in such a way that the Department of Education is actually profiting off of people's student loans. I, I understand that. I understand that. So when you see what I'm saying, it's not as simple as to say like, oh, these and, and the other thing I'll say to Larry Summer and people who make this argument is rich people, rich kids do not take student loans. I know this because I, I mean, being honest, like I'm a pretty privileged person. You know, I was an upper middle class kid. You, you are a lawyer. My mom was also a lawyer. Like I didn't grow up um, hungry or, or not being able to afford things. You know, I went, we went on nice vacations. But, but your your school. undergraduate school was paid for. We're talking about graduate school. You guys, you guys were able to pay for my undergraduate school. I went to in-state uh, public school. It was a good school, but yeah, you guys had set aside money to help me pay for that, which was a huge help. But I'll tell you this, Dad: at Columbia Journalism School, the vast majority of the kids I went to school with did not take student loans. They all just had their tuition and living expenses paid for by their families. So all this to say, like. This idea that there's these upper class people like me making six figure salaries uh, and shouldn't be bailed out, et cetera, et cetera. Part of the argument for canceling student loan debt is to stimulate the economy. Now, in my case, I'm 37. I'm turning 38 this year. And by the time I'm 38, I'm going to go back to having a roommate partly because every month I have to cough up $1,250 for my student loan and I just cannot afford to live by myself in New York City, despite the fact that I'm gainfully employed. Uh, and I have a very good and high-paying job compared to and you wouldn't have gotten And you wouldn't have gotten that very good, high-paying job if it wasn't for your education at Columbia, which, you know, so... Of course, yeah, and that's the other thing I would say, is like now I've worked at all the networks. I've worked at CBS, Vice News, uh, NBC, uh, Fusion... Uh, CNN, Al Jazeera, right? I've worked at all these these big uh, journalism networks, and everywhere I go, I meet shitloads of people who went to Columbia Journalism School. And 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 to your point, like if the barrier to entry is like, well, if you're smart about it, you just don't go there, then you're essentially just saying like, there's no real class mobility in this country, you know. Well, there always was, but the student loans weren't anywhere near as costly because the cost of education wasn't anywhere near as costly. I mean, your your Uncle Jack, my Uncle Jack, uh, graduated mm -hmm. Columbia um, in the 40s. Um, right. I don't know what his... And he was I don't a know teacher. What his, yeah, he was, he was a, a teacher. His whole life. I don't know what his education cost, but I can guarantee you um, he wasn't in, under the, the, the weight of student debt for his lifetime. Um, you know, uh, but, it, but the thing is, is on the to, massive scale, to yours. you're talking about now you're talking about a bubble that's worth trillions of dollars of student debt that is in default. Right. And that's that's a problem the same way all of the um, debt bubbles become at some point or another a problem. The other thing that I think people don't consider is, is like, OK, I'm 37. Um, I have an eighty thousand dollar student loan. 
Uh, I'm single. I definitely cannot afford to like get married and have kids right now. Like, it, it, should I want to? I'm about to move into an apartment with my friend Doug, uh, who I love. And Doug, if you're listening, we're gonna have a fucking super dope apartment. Everyone's invited. It's gonna be great. But all this to say, like, what what's gonna happen when I'm 60 and when I'm 70 and when I'm 80, if I haven't bought a house and I haven't secured my nest egg? that is going to allow me to like retire comfortably. I mean, I think we're seeing that, right? Like people no longer retire. You're still working. I would hope and assume it's partly just because you like working. Yeah, I'm not working. Um, I'm not working because I have to. I'm working because I enjoy it and I don't know what the hell I would do it myself if I did. But there's plenty of people your age that go work at Walmart as greeters or they go like the idea that you're going to just like comfortably retire and like get together and play bridge with your friends and bingo and shit like that like i think that era is sort of behind us for most americans because we don't really have the same degree of economic prosperity that your generation enjoyed over the course of your lifetime i don't i don't know that it's uh, economic I, I i don't think it's healthy uh, for people to work their most of their lives their adult lives and then to just stop i think without that um stimulation a daily stimulation and um you know i i know too many people who stop work and within two years they were dead you know it's not a i don't think it's a healthy thing to do so let me ask you this about education and i think this is a good sort of segue into the the documentary that i want to talk about um do you think education so i, I was thinking about this last night and trying to like figure out how to articulate it but like you're a smart you're a smart person you know i like to think so. you're natural you were naturally gifted with like a a sharp intellect i would say you know yeah, okay i think that's a fair uh, assessment and you were born into a circumstance that that made it so that you know you had to think about how you're going to make a living and by the time you finished high school college to you was like more or less a means to an end right and that end was gainful employment or some sort of um job prospects that would allow you to be like a a prosperous person right yep and you ended up after 20 something years as a police officer how long were you police officer 18 18 years as a police officer going to law school and i would assume i may correct me if i'm wrong that you did that because that was also a sort of professional stepping stone. Right. Well, that's that was my, yeah, that was my escape hatch. Absolutely. Right. And did do you remember if you got scholarships or student loans or how you were able to afford to go to school? Student loans. Student loans. Yeah. And when you, when you finished law school, did you go get a job at like some kick-ass law firm and make a six-figure salary? No, no. Uh... What'd you do? Well, I moved to California and um, bounced around a little trying to find work. I couldn't because I was older. Um, what year was that? Do you remember? 1980. 1982, actually. 1982, we came to California. Um, and I was born the following year, 83. Yeah. You were made in, and were made in New I, York, we like to say, but born in California. That's disgusting. <laughs> disgusting for you to think about but uh, it's the reality of it so um yeah so we had student loans but they weren't 
like yours. They weren't overwhelming. I think I owed maybe so, twenty, ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars. That was it. Right. So and that's for law school. So you for law school. You went to New York law school. You didn't go to Columbia. Uh, well, that's that's true. That's true. But, but and I also but, was working full time when I went as a cop. I was still working. So you got to California. You had me. And you weren't really working, or at least you weren't working that much. My mom was working. Yeah, she got right? a job. I, I um, started practicing law. I mean, the first, well, the first year while I waited for the bar results, um, I was actually a private investigator. I got a private investigator license based on my police experience, and I was doing private investigations over around the city. So what were you, like, finding, like, cheating wives and stuff like that no 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 it was uh, and people would hire me lawyers would hire me to investigate cases they were working on um you know a lot of criminal lawyers would would hire me to go interview witnesses um you know and and try and find somebody that could help their client's case i see um and then after I was born at some point, you guys bought a house or you bought that condo, the condo that I lived in when I was a little boy. Yeah. How were you able to do that? Um, how did we buy that condo? Um, basically, um, we had good incomes at that point. By the time we bought the condo, I had been working for a number of years and I was generating some money and your mother was working um, full time for a company and, and generating money. So between you guys' two incomes, a year, a couple years out of law school, despite the fact that you had student loans, bought a bought a bought some real estate, you know. Yeah, but the condo was like one hundred and twenty thousand dollars, and I think we put down ten or fifteen, and you know, it wasn't a big, it wasn't that big of a deal. How much money were you guys making at that time, if you had to guess? <sighs> She was probably making sixty, seventy thousand, and I was probably yeah. making somewhat less, but thirty, forty thousand. Right. So we could afford it. You see, right? It's just like anyone who's listening to this, who's closer to my age, is going to be like shocked by these figures because, like, the amount of money people make hasn't really changed that much, but the amount of money that it costs to buy a house or have a student loan is like far surpassed. Yeah. That, and that's, that's where the problem lies. Um, that's where the problem lies. Perfect segue, my man. Okay. So in case, uh, you're wondering about this documentary that I'm talking about, it's Adam Curtis's new documentary. It's called can't get you out of my head. I think it's supposed to be a six part series. Um, that's put out by the BBC so far. The first, at the time of recording, the first three episodes are up on the YouTube page. I love it. I loved Adam Curtis's last movie, Hypernormalization. I'll never forget when it came out in 2016, uh, feeling like it really cut through all of the noise and coverage of the election and sort of told the story of um, what was happening beneath the scenes. Uh, I actually wrote down... I rewatched the trailer to Hypernormalization to sort of refresh my memory. This was the director's last movie. And the text over the screen on the trailer says, We live in a world where the powerful deceive us. We know they lie. 
They know we know they lie. They don't care. We say we care, but we do nothing, and nothing ever changes. It's normal. Welcome to the post-truth world. That that was 2016, <laughs> um, and I just feel like that was incredibly insightful uh, and sort of predictive of what would happen over the time between then and now. Um, by, and the by way new of disclaimer, I didn't see that. Um, right. So F- fair I, enough. My, we don't have to my, talk. I'm just setting up. I'm just setting up the. I know what I know. this documentary is about for the audience that might not have have seen okay. it. Um, um, so, how many parts of the th- three parts that are now out? How many have you seen? I watched all three. Oh my god! And I watched oh. the first one twice. <laughs> I mean, I will say. Okay, so so uh. so I will just describe this documentary. For people who haven't seen it, Adam Curtis, he makes these sort of essay films with a lot of stock footage and music that, in my opinion, is like really beautifully and artistically sort of poetically done. The way he um, marries like his voiceover narration and these sort of broad sweeping general points he makes about history and politics and economics and stuff like that um, uses music and stock footage to sort of and anecdotes that sometimes are like just off history or historical figures that don't always get remembered in like the collective consciousness and the telling of these these pieces of history. So the first episode of this documentary can't get you out of my head. For example, like one of the main characters is Mao Zedong's wife. Uh, there's also um, a Trinidadian civil rights activist in London who you later find out turns into like a, a violent criminal and eventually a drug dealer and murderer. Um, the, you know, Ru- the Russian Revolution, the Chinese Revolution, uh, and the sort of dark looming paranoia in America and a reckoning with individualism versus collectivism, I'd say, is the sort of overarching uh framework of this documentary okay it's called um this particular one bloodshed on wolf mountain um Mm -hmm. i I have a whole lot of um criticism of this movie because number one he bases a lot of assumptions on anecdotal incidents um with no real um, investigation into trends or uh, surveys or any any true factual basis, uh, and he comes to conclusions that mm-hmm. I think are, are way off base. Um, like what, for example? Okay, like his first conclusion that he deals with um, is that a lot of the people that came to America um, were um, paranoid because they were uh, traumatized by um, the corruption were, of power in Europe is, is uh, it's the way he that's used that's said. his phrase yeah, yeah the corruption of power oh. in Europe in other words mm-hmm. people were brutalized and terrorized and and fled um, yes. and that's just not 100% true a well, large a large a large what he's, I think he's talking about the founders of the of America well, I don't think that um, 
you know, yes, the pilgrims came here because they were they were being persecuted. But I don't think you're talking about George Washington and and uh, Madison and John Jefferson. You're talking about people like that. They weren't they weren't running away from anything. I, I see. There's a whole there's a whole uh, leap by the bootstraps that he that he creates to say that America is based on. Um, Paranoia, and it's just—it couldn't be I mean, further from the truth. Think about think about the Constitution. Like the Second Amendment of the Constitution sets up mechanisms whereby people can organize militias to defend themselves. Don't forget in about a hypothetical. What, don't forget about the timing of this. The reason the revolution happened was overtaxation by Great Britain, right? Um, I mean, that was a big a big part of it. Taxation without representation, and and the people were up in arms about that. Um, this was not paranoia. Um, they decided, and and their concern was, if if they're going to form a new government, they don't want it to be all so powerful that they go. It's going to be able to hamper the individual. It was based on right. individual rights. That's were gonna, right. Yes. Were going to rule. That was going to be the rule, not the exception. I don't I don't think that Adam Curtis would disagree with you that the focus of America, like our collective consciousness or the ethos of this country is an individualism. He's just saying that like one of the motivations for that sense of individualism is like a paranoia about what corrupt power has has the potential to do on the individual to limit our personal freedoms or tax us unjustly or kill us or persecute us, right? The, 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 the creators of the Constitution were concerned about centralized power, and they wanted to limit it. Remember, there were 13 colonies, so they, they divided the power, and that's why we have a federalist system, and we've talked about this before. And, and the states have power. Uh, and the federal government has somewhat limited power. And, the, and the, all the amendments were to limit the power of the federal government. Why? So that Why? Be, because they were concerned that um, the federal government would become all too powerful and would usurp the rights of individuals. That's right. what it but was. That's, that, that's based on prior experiences having been like feudal subjects it's in Europe. It's certainly or, not based on paranoia. It's, well, it's, it was logically thought out. Okay, fair, fair enough. What else? What else? Um, I, I, I just think that you're making a bit of a... It seems like you fundamentally agree that there was this sort of concern in the construct of America that the rights and liberties of the individual need to be protected at all costs. And that's sort of our... Uh, you, have to sort remember of our us. you have to remember us. Uh, everywhere else in the world, the rights of the individual didn't matter. You had pre you know, yeah, feudal well, systems, you had kingdoms, you had, you know, rulers, dictators. The, the individual was, until this country was formulated, that didn't exist. That's right. And, that's, and, and, and that was the amazing part of Jefferson. He, he came up with all of this incredible idea. And the power was not being given to the people from the government. It was coming from what they, God, okay? And, and it was universal. The individual has freedoms, and we're going to set this government up to protect those freedoms, but not to get so strong as to usurp those freedoms. That's that's was that's what this government was all about. It wasn't based on paranoia. 
Well, I think you're just taking issue with a linguistical thing where he's describing the same thing you're describing and he's calling it paranoia and you're calling it uh, a justifiable and logical position. Yeah, I'm calling it logical. Logical. Okay. And, and okay. I might add brilliant. Okay. But I think he makes the point over the course of the first episode of the documentary that that logical concern or... or um, you know, ca- cautionary uh, attitude towards uh, over over overpowerful federal government became sort of warped and perverted in the suburbs. I'm assuming that's something else you would take issue with. Of course, I take issue with that. That's absurd. Um, but but remember, he started in Great Britain, and he started yeah. with um, Indian minorities from India. Who yeah. came? Who, and from who, and the Caribbean, who were British subjects, and they came to London, and they were segregated against, and they couldn't yes. believe it because I'm. I was told I believe that I'm. I'm British subject, and I, I believe in the king or the queen, and just as much as you do. But I come here to the heart of this government, and I'm, you know, I'm. I'm prejudiced. I'm. I'm a second class citizen. And and he went into this whole thing about that. Yeah, because he's not making. I, I think that he's he's not making like a super um, granular critique of like America or the Republicans or the Democrats or uh, race race uh, c- critical race theory or something. He's making a sort of he calls it an emotional history of the modern modern world and i think that the modern world transcends borders so he's not you see what i'm saying he's not it's not all centered around america it's not all oh, centered oh around i america. i agree 100 percent. and you know he, yeah. i don't think he used the words republican or democrat no I, I i agree with you i agree with you he was he was just saying this is what the world right now this is the motivation behind people in the world right now um yes. and and i totally disagreed with him but okay okay and the bloodshed um, on Wolf Mountain was mm-hmm. took place in China, and right. it was it was about uh, Mao's wife. Now, Mao mm-hmm. was a ruthless leader. I mean, he killed millions of Chinese. Um, yes. ruthless, brutal. Um, they had what's what they called the. Uh, the Cultural Revolution. Cultural Revolution, yes. And, and, and Mao, everybody had to be, everybody ran around with these little red books, you know, yes. uh, Chairman Mao. And um, he was idolized, sort of like uh, um, the guy in uh, North Korea right now. He, yeah. They didn't, they, I don't know that they thought of him as a god, but he was idolized. Um, and uh, pictures were everywhere. And, and, and if you, if, if he, Talk about paranoia. He was paranoid. He was like uh, yes. Lenin. He was like Lenin, um, the second coming of Lenin, basically, um, because anybody who he suspected or or in any way believed. I think you wanted to say. Did you want to say Stalin or did you mean Lenin? I meant Lenin. Well, I meant I meant Stalin. You're right. You You're meant right. Stalin, right? That's what I, I meant. Said. Stalin. Okay. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. He was the second coming of Stalin because he, he killed. Millions of people. Anybody suspected of being uh, an enemy, you know, was killed and put into. They didn't call them gulags, but did they camps. tell this they part of camps. the story in the? F- I, I can't remember if they tell this part of the story in the first episode or if it's in a later episode where they talk about the Cultural Revolution and how he sort of set 
um, hordes of young students like loose to root out the reactionary anti-revolutionary figures and then uh, that, later that must, they have, sort of, must have come in the second oh, one it's, it's, I, I think it's he, it, i think his treatment of that chapter maybe it's in a later episode is very well done because what he sort of explains is that whole thing was actually a way for mao to weed out anyone within the party within the communist party mm-hmm. that was challenging his authority within the party Correct. like it seemed like it was this radical you sort of chaotic remember, you got to remember even though i didn't see the movie i lived mm-hmm. that that was happening while during my lifetime i i was aware right. of all of that um and it was it was amazing because yeah he was brutalizing that country right but at the same time um you know i think that the documentary sort of touches on different revolutionary moments um and it talks about like the 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 aftermath of the the russian revolution and right you know the the fall of the soviet union um Uh, which are all sort of these like uh, monumental yeah go ahead i don't know that he i mean i i want to sort of take you through this so after the china scenes then he Mm -hmm. switches to the u.s in the 50s talking about individualism uh, but mm-hmm. he said, and that's when he said that Americans were all had this dark paranoia because they fled Europe, um, you know, under fear of uh, these strong governments, runaway governments, like I'm sure Germany um, at that time. Um, and he t- then he talked somewhat about the John Birch Society, extreme yes. anti-communists. Um, mm-hmm. I have familiarity and, with and, I have familiarity with the John Birch Society. Dwight, that Dwight Eisenhower was a, 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 essentially a Manchurian candidate uh, right, who was right. being manipulated by Russia. By, does, by that, Russia. does that ring yes. a bell? Does yes, that ring yes. a bell to anybody? He said, yeah, he said that. Um, the John Birch Society was was uh, ran pretty big in the police department. Um, so I could imagine. I, I was given literature. I was interested in it because I was a conservative and it was very strong anti-communist. Um, I went to some meetings. I heard rumors that they were anti-Semitic and racist. I didn't see anything like that. I wrote letters t- because at that point there was no internet, right? So I had to research. I wrote letters to every politician I could come up with, um, the mayor, the governor, senators, president. I wrote letters to the, to pretty much every politician that, that I could name, uh, asking them what they knew about this organization because I didn't want I didn't want to join it if it was anti-Semitic obviously um, I didn't see any signs of that but I didn't know um, ended up I didn't join it because it just sort of faded away um, I don't know why he mentioned that because it was such a small almost insignificant part of American history I don't know how widespread it was well he's te- again I, he's telling a sort of um, what he calls an emotional history so I, I think you you know Something that you see as a fault in this documentary is that it makes sort of disparate connections between seemingly isolated occurrences. And then, yeah, yeah. I mean, he talks about the Illuminati and how, uh, you know, everybody's paranoia about these uh, um, conspiracies. And I, I just don't, I don't see all of that. I don't, I don't agree with that. He said uh, the isolation of the new world was fed by paranoia. Um, yeah. 
he talks about later in a later episode there's a really interesting part where he and I hadn't actually realized this that um Valium was then like in the 50s and 60s and 70s became like the most prescribed drug in America right and millions right. of people especially women were taking it and and there's a lot of suburban women who felt a sort of alienation and detachment yeah. from it's like, themselves. Uh, remember the movie The Valley of the Dolls? I don't remember that movie. Okay, it was about the dolls were pills, and it was the women in suburbia. Yeah, it was very similar to that thought. Uh, but 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 like, listen to this. I hadn't realized that it was the settlers, as in the settlers from the opioid epidemic, who were the largest purveyors of Valium. Um, Interesting. But I, I think that he's he's what he's trying to do is like paint a portrait of um, of the world that we uh, the way that we think that the world works and the the forces that sort of govern our lives and te- and control the narrative in terms of like how we understand and interpret the world and our past and our potential future and mm-hmm. the and and other forces that aren't at the surface that we don't consider that we don't necessarily read about in history books that explain to us where we came from and how we got here and where we might go in the future yeah i see he wants you to connect a lot of dots that i i can't connect and i don't i don't i just don't accept his his for his basis for any that's of fair that's and then he, ta- he talked about Oswald and killing the president and the guy. He, well, he's yeah, it's the guy, the yeah. guy who he interviews or who's featured there. Yeah. Talking about movie, Oswald. Made a movie about Oswald, wrote a book about Oswald. He wrote a book about Oswald and he's also the person who, if you remember, the first soundbite you hear of that guy is him saying he was bowling with a friend. Right. And they were right. and they were having a conversation about order and chaos. Mm-hmm. And he says. His friend was saying that order is an illusion. It's something that the human mind projects onto reality. That reality is pure chaos and disorder, and there isn't really like a logic to it. And order is a human construct that we then use to project onto the world to help us make sense of it. And he was saying that the opposite is true, right? Mm Mm-hmm. That there is like an inherent order and structure to the world that's sort of was, coherent. He was talking to the universe. He was talking in terms of the universe and, and bringing it down to the world. Um, right, yes. And and he talked about Ayn Rand versus Kennedy. Yes. And, and, how and he Oswald, was a Randian. He hated, he hated, he hated Kennedy. He hated Kennedy, right. He was, he and was he loved a, Ayn Rand. He did. He did. Yeah. And um, and what, 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 he, what they ended up doing as an experiment was to publish ads in a bunch of counterculture magazines that talked about the Illuminati. Right. As a sort of tongue-in-cheek joke that ended up becoming a part of the sort of individualistic and in 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 his mind in in the eyes of the filmmaker paranoia about these dark forces manipulating us like the Illuminati, you know. Right. Right. Then he switched As back to England. To... Then he switched back to England, and he talked yes. about how the British Empire had been collapsing, and mm-hmm. um, old attitudes of power. Um, and he talked about the the lords and the, the earls and the dukes and all of this wealth that was in the hands of the few. And um, 
and, and then there was this uh, racism by a gangster named Rachman. Uh, I, I, yes, it was, it he was, was a Jewish man. That's an injury. Right. I, I didn't know that story, but I've then later read about it. A Jewish Holocaust survivor who tur- turned slumlord, right. uh, who who ended up employing, uh, you know, a, a Trinidadian immigrant as an enforcer who became essentially like the Malcolm X of, of London. Yeah, I mean, he goes through bits and pieces and he wants to tie it all together mm-hmm. with the underlying con- feeling that's motivating people to act yes. the way they do. I mean, he mm-hmm. goes back to China, then he goes back to New York. Then he, I think the last segment was about um, New Orleans in the 60s, 67, there was a DA named Jim Garrison. I remember this yes. very clearly, who uh, basically, um, he had a con- he was a conspiracy believer that Kennedy was killed by a secret system in the US. Um, he, he, he prosecuted, um, I forget who he prosecuted, God. It was bizarre, um, Jim Garrison. He tried to make the case for conspiracy. Right. Against the CIA, correct. At all. He was claiming the CIA was involved um, in the assassination, and, there, and there were theories abounding at this time frame about was it Castro, was it Moscow, because Oswald had traveled to Moscow. He met his wife there. Um, he came back. What do you think? Do you think? Do you believe that Oswald acted alone and killed John Kennedy? End of story. No, I think Oswald. I think uh, I think this all came about by Cuba, by Fidel Castro. But and you think it was Castro, or do you think it was the Bay I think of it was, Pigs anti revolution? I Cubans? think it was Castro, not the anti revolution. I think it was Castro, uh, because don't forget the CIA. Because you like the anti revolution. The CIA and because you like the Bay of Pigs people. Uh, uh, the Bay of Pigs should have should have been backed up more by Kennedy. Um, Kennedy let them down. He didn't give them the air cover he promised, and they got wiped out. Other other whole story. But um, going back to what I believe, uh, I believe uh, Castro was, there were attacks on Castro's life by the CIA. The CIA hired um, the mob. They they did exploding cigars. They did a whole, and this is all true. This is factual. They did a whole lot of things uh, different attempts to kill Castro. I think Castro killed Kennedy t- to stop it because Castro was so pissed. Um, and I think that's who Oswald was working for. But of course, and do we'll you never think know. people know that? Because, do you think because, that? Do you think people know that? Like people in the government know that? It was part of the. It was. It was partly investigated by the Warren Commission. Um, so why? Why well, do you think that? Because that's what were they going to do? Go to war? They killed our president. No, but just tell the story. Just tell the truth. No, you, know? you can't. You can't. If you're the government, if somebody killed your president, well, you, you don't. You don't do anything back. You can't do that. So they did not. Okay, so for net, from now on, we can't. This is, I think, Adam Curtis's point with his last film and with this one is that we're being manipulated, right? And this is an example. It's like you're, what you're saying is you think, you, you believe that that's the case. And let's assume for a second that you're right, okay? Mm hmm. Um, you think that it's better that we don't that the American people don't know the truth about the Kennedy assassination because of no, what that I would, would like imply? I would like the, I would like the American people to know the truth, um, and I would like the truth to have come out. It didn't. 
Um, and right. here we are. Here we are. Some and, 60 and, years and I later. think part of yeah, part of what Adam Curtis is. I heard an interview with him recently on a different podcast, and he was talking about how he hopes that he can. Um, he hopes that he inspires sort of conversations and thinking about um, about like the way the world is constructed and to also recognize that it's constructed intentionally and that it doesn't have to be that way, right? That we've constructed it the way that it is and that that's a choice, you know? Um, I, I, don't, play... I don't know that that's so true because don't forget there are billions of people in the world and everybody acts in individual motivations and, and, and yeah but he's talking about what the powers that govern us you know there's there's a lot of different powers that govern a lot of different people yeah but I, okay but in the case in this case like the powers that govern the United States won't let us know the truth about the Kennedy assassination. Do you or, believe or, in area? Do you believe in area? What's it? Fifty-one. Uh, I mean, I, I don't think it's. I don't think that it's any. Um, you don't think there's an alien there, or they've shot down ships, or ships, uh, alien ships crashed? See, I don't. I don't. I don't really that. know, but I know Area One is a place that actually does exist. I mean, I don't think. That's yeah, like it does exist. Thing. It does exist, but I don't believe that uh, there's any deep top secrets there, but. I think this whole thing about Kennedy, I mean, don't forget, after Oswald killed Kennedy, then Jack Ruby gets into the police station there and as they're taking him out, kills Oswald. I mean, there's just too many coincidental things. That that, I mean, that's classic mob stuff, right? But, but Dad, this is my point. It's like whoever is at the helm of... Bob Dylan put out like those new songs or whatever last year. And one of them was about the Kennedy assassination. Mm-hmm. And what I interpreted it to be, the song, uh, is is like a sort of condemnation of his generation, of the baby boomers, who essentially allowed this broad conspiracy to go like unadjudicated um, because who knows why, right? Because there's dark forces that manipulate the narrative and are, are are capable of assassinating presidents and getting away with it. I I, I think that that's as you can clear take this day. you can take the conspiracy angle and go way way overboard. You can say look the CIA didn't like Kennedy because he was um taking away power from the uh, intelligence community, taking away money from the intelligence community and um so they didn't investigate it or didn't you know, make it known what they knew. Um, who knows? You know, there's theories that Johnson knew. Who knows? Nobody knows. And I don't think we'll ever know. But, right, but that, you asked me yeah, my belief. My belief is that it was Castro behind it. Okay. Let me play you. So there's a 60 Minutes uh, producer. Um, Ira Rosen is his name. And he was on this other podcast called Skullduggery. And he did, he's done a lot of like pretty interesting investigative reporting over the years. And um, he wrote a book that he's promoting on this podcast where he describes um, a night in which he met Ghislaine Maxwell, who is Jeffrey Epstein's uh, Mm -hmm. co conspirator who's now been indicted on sex trafficking charges. He tells a story about how he met Ghislaine Maxwell and then went to drive her home after some drinks. And she said, um, she said, I'll tell you about my father if you come inside and fuck me. <laughs> and <laughs> and he, he makes some excuse as to why he can't, uh, can't do that. 
But then later he follows up and asks her to have a drink with him and says that he wants the tapes, referring to the tapes of Donald Trump in Jeffrey Epstein's, I think in one of Jeffrey Epstein's houses, having sex with underage girls, right? And it's in the middle of... I heard this, yeah. And it's in the middle of the... It's during the 2016 election when they're having this conversation. And she sort of says to him, I won't do it because I know how the press works. And if you tell one side of the story, you're going to have to tell the other side of the story. And the insinuation was that the press would want the tapes of Bill Clinton, right? Yeah. Because because she, she makes the supposition that there's also tapes of Bill Clinton having sex with underage girls. And then... Mike, Michael Isakoff, who's an investigative journalist um, who hosts this podcast, asks him what he thinks happened to Jeffrey Epstein. And the 60 Minutes producer says that he thinks Jeffrey Epstein was murdered. And Michael Isakoff kind of scoffs and says, like, oh, come on, that's that's crazy. That's a conspiracy theory, you know. Um, but I think this gets to the point of, like, are will we know what happened with Jeffrey Epstein? Like, Bill Clinton gets to eulogize members of Congress when they die. He's featured in Joe Biden's inauguration. And there's out in the open accusations made by women who say they were forced to have sex with them when they were children. Uh, and this yeah. is someone who's still like welcome in polite society. So that's, I think, sort of the, the reality that um, Adam Curtis tries to poke, poke holes in and say that this isn't like what we're being told and what we're being con- conditioned to think is normal uh, is not normal. And it's a choice. It's a choice for us to continue to live this way and, and be subject to the power that protects someone like Bill Clinton from a full adjudication of the accusations made against him, you know? Yeah, well, see, it shouldn't be. I agree with you, it shouldn't be. Um, Don't forget, um, the press, when it's um, independent and free and non-biased, is a very powerful uh, part of our society that is supposed to be, you know, the, the independent seeker of truth, right? I mean, look, I mean, the most powerful person in the world is the president, right? Um, Richard Nixon was taken down uh, by the press. Woodward and Bernstein. Well, by his own, by his, arguably by his own paranoia. Like he wasn't required to record all of his conversations from the Oval Office. Okay, okay. For whatever reason, there was evidence. Uh, They dug and they went for the truth. Now, Mm -hmm. would they have done something like that with Clinton? I doubt it. Would they have done something like that with Obama? I doubt it. Would they do something like that with Trump? Absolutely. Because the press is biased, and that's unfortunate. And, and journalism shouldn't be that way. Because but, it's, but a great, talking, it's a great yeah. independent third set of eyes that, that can you know, re- ferret out this crap. Yes, but it's been corrupted, obviously. Yes, know? yes, and that's unfortunate. But, okay, so... I guess this is like the sort of final question, and I think whether or not you like this documentary, something that I'm maybe noticing about like you and I and like how we're different. Um, yeah, the fact I, that I don't I think, like it doesn't mean people shouldn't watch it. It's you know no, right? But what I'm saying is is like I 
relate to and enjoy um, these sort of like 30,000 foot explorations of like the farce that we live in and the, the, the way that like narratives and power are constructed and protected. I feel interested and curious to explore that idea in a way that that doesn't um, rely on like a partisan political framework. Uh, because I think that at this moment that we're living in now, um, it's pretty clear that there's a lot of people who are dissatisfied with the status quo and who are angry, right? So sure, sure. So 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 like Donald Trump, he really he really rode into power on a wave of anger and frustration with not just the Democrats, but also with the Republicans, right? Like he smashed the Republican field by by sort of viciously attacking all of these establishment Republicans. Correct. Correct. Um, and Bernie Sanders' popularity is is also, I think, also related to dissatisfaction people feel with the status quo. If, do you so, remember the Tea Party? It wasn't that long ago. The Tea Party. That, Rush, that's where all Rush, of this began. That's where all of this began. That's where Trump began with the Tea Party. I mean, Rush Limbaugh, who, who predates the Tea Party, I think, is also in a large way responsible for a lot of this. Um, maybe. Maybe. And, and Rush Limbaugh... I just want to play here a clip of Rush Limbaugh talking about the, what happened on January 6th at the Capitol. Have a listen. We're supposed to be horrified by the protesters. Meanwhile, four years of a coup launched in the Oval Office of Barack Obama to overturn the election results of 2016 and not a single word of concern about the potential damage to our Constitution. No, there were just utter denials. We didn't do it. I don't know what you're talking about. Trump's got to go. Trump's poison. So we... A lot of irony out there. And there's a lot of people calling for the end of violence. There's a lot of conservatives, social media, who say that any violence or aggression at all is unacceptable, regardless of the circumstances. I'm glad Sam Adams, Thomas Paine, the actual Tea Party guys, the men at Lexington and Concord, didn't feel that way. So essentially he's making the argument that the anger and frustration and, and use of violence in the Capitol riot um, is being widely condemned by people on the right and on the left. Uh, but he's taking issue with that because what he's saying is the election was stolen. And, and this is a point I've made a few weeks ago. The, the election was stolen, and in the spirit of the American Revolution, fighting and potentially risking your life uh, to preserve liberty and freedom is noble I, I, and patriotic. I, I, I agree with your definition of what he's you're, you're repeating what he's saying or paraphrasing what he's saying, and I, I, I yes. agree with that. And uh, that's where I heartily disagree with him. Um, you know, it's it's sad 
that so many people were fed that lie. Um, but, you know, such is, such is the way of the world. I mean, you know, we're all upset about violence. Um, the press didn't say a damn thing. Uh, but, Dad, you're, 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 during you're the making, summer. You're, you're still, like, discussing this issue. Like, what, I, what I'm saying is, like, I think Rush Limbaugh has a point here. Like I, I wasn't playing this clip to say, like, I don't look think at he how has a, I don't I don't know that he has a point. Well, I'll tell you what I think his point is. Okay, I think his point is this country was made by men who who did who were radicals and who used violence to to overthrow the status quo, and and they were. Um, they destroyed property. They committed war crimes, right? They, they rose up in what, in its own moment, would be considered an illegal insurrection. Um, uh, and know, where, reason, why, where are you getting they committed war crimes? They, they, they killed civilians and they tarred and feathered. They, they declared uh, war. But then they tarred and feathered. Uh, like the 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 British uh, overlords, and you know, like they tortured them. <laughs> Those war, I mean, you know, it, it, I guess you can say they didn't have jurisdiction for war crimes because the Universal Declaration of Human Rights didn't happen until hundreds of years later. But by all, um, by by like modern morality, if you look at the way the American Revolution was launched, you can't do that, Russ. You can't. Take today's morality. See, that's one of the problems that's happening in the world today. You're taking mm -hmm. today's morality and saying, well, we, all of them were slave owners, right? So, so we need to take down the statues. We, we need to rename all the schools. That's bullshit. You got to look at it with the morality of the time. Not with, not with today's American, morality. Morality do you think changes. That the American, do you think that the American Revolution was like a noble and righteous cause? Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so the only difference they were being between oppressed. what these people they were being did. They were being oppressed. We're not the being only oppressed. The only difference between what happened on January 6th and, and what happened, let's say, at the original Tea Party was that they had good reason to be upset, whereas these people that stormed the Capitol were manipulated into thinking that they had a good reason to be upset. No, we have a free um, country here where... If you don't like the outcome of an election, four years from now, there'll be another one. You don't go and do violence on the, in the, on, on the basis of our country. You just don't. So let me add, okay, so this is the, this is the sort of... You got to understand something. They were, they were, they were um, citizens of Great Britain back right, then. Right, and they committed a crime by violently they declared, overthrowing they de the rule. They declared war on Great Britain. It was a separate colony. These were 13 colonies declared mm -hmm. war on Great Britain and said, we don't want to be under your rule anymore. Yeah. So yeah. if the Oath Keepers or the Three Percenters or like a group of militiamen get together and declare war on the United States and say, we don't want to be a part of your country anymore... That's that would be justified. That would be warranted. No, it's like the Civil War. You're talking about the Civil War. All Why over not? Again. Why isn't it? Because what you're saying is because it's not justified because the re that that revolution was justified and warranted 
and future or potential revolutions are because, not. Because our, we couldn't vote. They had no way to vote. They had no way to change the system. Here, we have a way and a means to change the system, to change the leadership, to change who's in charge. With When you're a, a, a territory or whatever the hell we were called of Great Britain, you don't have that. We weren't given any votes. We couldn't. We, we didn't have any votes in the House of Commons. We we couldn't do anything. It, we, we were at the whim and mercy of the king. But the but what that's I guess not what the Adam case Cur- today. Yeah. What what Adam Curtis seeks to show and portray in his documentary is that there are all sorts of anti-democratic forces that actually do govern. Um, us and have an influence on our economics, on the outcome of our elections, on the narratives that we're told by the media. Or Russ, or we've been talking about this ad infinitum about mm-hmm. um, big tech and and Twitter and all of that, how yeah. it influences the election, and, and it shouldn't be. We agree, it shouldn't it be. Shouldn't be. Okay. And the so, news so and the press should be impartial, not biased, where they can, you know, basically. One of the things Adam Curtis talked about in this interview, I heard him talk about um, how how essentially like he thinks that the United States and the UK are locked in this sort of death spiral where it's like the the ship is sinking, but it's actually like the Republicans or the and the Democrats or the conservatives and labor sort of like in a wrestling match on the deck of the ship, not addressing, not able to actually address any of the actual material and structural problems um, of the system because they're too interested in owning the opposing party. So in this case, it's like your point, the the press loves to dunk on Ted Cruz because fuck Ted Cruz and fuck conservatives. Meanwhile, Andrew Cuomo is trolling through the pandemic and getting um, an Emmy. And then you turn on Fox News and all they're invested in doing is uh, – you know, bashing the mainstream media and the Democrats. And meanwhile, the ship is sinking. So I guess this is this is like the last question, and this, I think, is a good way to to sort of wrap up the episode. There are those of us that believe that our political system and our economic system is not adequately equipped to handle the current situation and the future. And I think that that's anger and frustration you see in support for Donald Trump, in support for Bernie Sanders. And if you look back in history, you'll see that there are times where there's a rupture of the social contract. The status quo, like all of the forces that govern our society, political parties, the media, um, economic uh, power, like this past summer, there was a rupture of the social contract. There was a massive protest movement. There was rioting all across the country, right? And it was a it was a disruptive and sort of explosive. You could have said seeds of a potential revolutionary moment, but it was. But look at what the end result was. They they're going to rename a few military bases that were named after conservative generals, and there's a black woman who's the vice president, and that's pretty much it, right? So all this to say. All of those powers that that be have a vested interest in preserving the status quo and keeping us going down the path we're on, whether that be capitalism or what we call a democracy, um, which is increasingly undemocratic because you have it, you're going to continue to have minority rule um, with the way the Senate's structured and gerrymandering and all this stuff. So 
that's one way to sort of look at the world. The other way to look at the world is to say, this is the way things have always been, and it's the way things will always continue to be. Why are there school shootings? Well, because in the Second Amendment, it says this, this, and this. Well, why is it that, uh, you know, people are mad at the media? Well, because the media lies and manipulates and da-da-da-da-da. Okay, so is there a solution? Well, no, there isn't a solution because our hands are tied because X, Y, and Z. There's another world that I think Adam Curtis is asking us to imagine where we can reimagine and reinvent the future, that we don't have to be beholden to the current structures that govern us. We can reimagine and reinvent those structures to better suit our how, needs. How, how fact, are we going to do that? How are we going to do and that? In f- I don't know. I mean, I, I don't think he's proposing the answer. He's just saying, if you look back on history, there have been over the last, we just have, over the last We have years. a legislative process in which to do that. You have to elect the people. I don't think it's adequate. Like, this is, this is I think, a fundamental You don't think it's adequate? No, I don't think that the government, that the United States Constitution... I think the United States Constitution is incredibly flawed, and I think the way our our democracy. Okay, so let me is ask you. Up, let me ask you a question. So, mm-hmm. where in the world is it better? Because I think I notice. Parli- I notice I that you're still living here, and so this is such a. I, I find this to be like we're talking about reactionary. Like no, the no, word no, reactionary. no, 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 no. I just want this an answer is a very from you. Reactionary is there a system? Too. Is there a system working that's better somewhere else? I think a parliamentary system is a much better way to do representative democracy. Like they, have in, parliament- like they have in England? Like they have in England, like they have in Germany. So, like so they have why, in is England, why is England sinking? In- what, what do you mean? Is in- because they're doing you a bad job You said the United COVID. States and England are mm-hmm. sinking on a sinking ship. And they're yeah. arm wrestling with each other. What is, I how, think why that is that- England sinking if it's got such a much better system? I think it has to do with capital, like global capitalism is the reason why we're sinking, because we're beholden to all sorts of economic interests that don't take into account the interests of the individual, of, of human beings. Russ, uh, nobody says, nobody says yeah. that yeah. our system is perfect. It's not. We've changed the Constitution. How many amendments have there been? Um, you know, it's, it's doable, but there's a process. You have to go through but, the process. Right. But I, what I'm saying is... And, I, and it's like moving, changing government is like steering a ship. It, it takes a thing, long Dad, time to turn this it country, around. This country is relatively new, right? Yeah. And, and, and when you consider that, and then you consider all of the very drastic changes that we've gone through, like major, like, you know, the economic prosperity from the 1950s until like the 1990s or early 2000s was largely thanks to a boom brought about by World War II, you know, and uh, the New Deal and this giant. And, and, like, and now we have a, a we had a tech boom and and we're and still we had a booming. tech boom we're and we have booming. phones. And, we have, and why is have that? A, why is that? We have we have because what do you mean? because well, in this, this is, country, yeah. Russ, we have the mm-hmm. freedom to innovate. You have the freedom to design stuff and change the world. But here's you, the thing, Dad. There are those of us. There are those of us that think that we're not on a good path, that are concerned about whether or not the current political structures currently in place are adequate to address the crisis that we're okay, in then, and, then and the design, direction which we're headed. And there are design others who a think, different system and show it to us so we can look at it and evaluate it. You don't, you don't have any answers. You just have questions. It's, it's about having an, it's, I think it's about having imagination 
It's about, first of all, recognizing that there are things beyond like which Democrat or which Republican who are all beholden to the same. Okay, we 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 can agree to this. So it's about understanding the difference. How are you going to fix it? How are you going to fix it? I don't have the answer. Okay. Well, when you you say there's enough of us that are upset with it that don't think mm -hmm. it's working, get together with the rest of your your group and come up with a better plan. Do you think I don't think you can? No. Do you think that I'm wrong? I think you're wrong. I think human nature is going against everything you're saying. What, what am I saying? All I'm saying is the look, what I'm saying, I don't think is that much different than what uh, the leaders of the French Revolution or the leaders of the Bolshevik Revolution or the leaders of the Chinese Revolution or the leaders of the American Revolution thought at one point or another. Right. Which is like the current way in which our society is arranged is is deeply flawed and we need to have the imagination to and what happened with, with what happened with the, the russian revolution and the chinese revolution they were I mean, the american revolution just like we the know american revolution we know the what american revolution the was incredibly flawed just like all the other revolutions well then show me a way to make it better don't be a negative person show me a way to make it better